Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. We'll be looking this morning at Daniel 1, uh, 1 through 21. But for the sake of a shorter reading to get us started, I'll only read the first eight verses. So Daniel 1, 1 through 8. If you're able, please stand, uh, not out of respect for the reader, but out of the one, respect for the one who speaks, our God who speaks to us through his word. This is Daniel 1, 1 through 8. This is God's word. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate, and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. So far the reading of God's word. Would you pray with me? Father, as our Savior prayed for us, sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Show us Christ in his grace and by the powerful work of the Holy Spirit, transform us by that grace more and more into the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. The devil's cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring but still intending, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of God seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. That's from one of my favorite C.S. Lewis works called The Screwtape Letters. And I can't think of a better way to capture the perspective of a young Hebrew named Daniel, as we find him in Daniel 1. Daniel and his three friends who have been exiled to Babylon. Uh, we heard the Babylonian victory in those first verses that we read. It's summarized in the first two verses. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah... Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So we see the Lord's hand behind this siege. God has uh, turned Judah over to Babylon. He's turned his people Judah over to exile in response to their national disobedience. They have broken God's covenant with them. 
They have disregarded the warnings of the prophets of God sent to them, and the penalty for their disobedience was brought upon themselves. They have done this to themselves. And Daniel, as he writes chapter 1, the chapter we just read, he's likely a man over 80 years old at that point, looking back over this experience of exile. And he recognizes, as he looks back, God's hand of judgment on Judah. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. So that's Daniel looking back. But let's look for a moment at this chapter from the perspective of Daniel. Try to put yourself in Daniel's shoes. This young man of the nobility, of the learned, of the taught in Judah. We haven't even met him yet in chapter 1, but he's Imagine him standing in Judah, in Jerusalem, as he sees the city under siege. Imagine Daniel seeing the city of the God he worships under siege by this horrible enemy, Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians, the great empire. The end draws near, Jerusalem falls, the temple uh, elements, the pieces of worship, the cups and the vessels and the things that were used in worship are carried out of the temple, and they're put into the temple of a pagan god in Babylon. If you were Daniel, would this not appear like a universe from which every trace of God has seemed to vanish? Maybe that describes how you see the world from time to time. Have you ever looked around our world and thought, you know, I just wonder what God is doing and where he is? I know it sounds kind of unholy to say those words out loud, but I think we think those words all the time. Where is God and what in the world is God doing? You think I'm finding it harder and harder to see where God is at work. That's maybe a little more polite way of putting it, but it nags at us, doesn't it? Where is God when we look around upon a universe from which all trace of God seems to have vanished? The book of Daniel can help you with that. See, the book of Daniel is written to those who have come out of exile to show them where their God was all along. But our experience is much more like the people of Judah living in exile. So we're going to look at that today and for a few weeks after today. I want to look today at Daniel 1 with you, not to show you this Old Testament superstar and his three exemplary amigos. That's not what we're trying to do. That's not why we look at the book of Daniel. No, we want to see what power kept these young men faithful to God in the middle of an impossible situation. Uh, In this situation where God seems nowhere to be found, they were faithful. What can keep you faithful in a situation like that? You see, you can't dare to be a Daniel, like maybe you've heard in the past. You can't dare to be a Daniel unless you're actually armed with the power that kept Daniel and his friends faithful under these circumstances. And that power is the staying power of faith. Faith. Faith laying hold of God's presence and his promises even when God seems to have vanished. So at the end of the day, that's the big point I want you to see in Daniel 1. It's a life of conscience and courage like we see in Daniel and his friends. It's powered by faith in gospel promises. So I want to walk through this story together looking at three headings, three scenes that sort of trace the drama, and I think they'll help us see the flow of this story. We'll look at a tempting offer, taking a stand, and a telling ending. So let's work through this under those three headings. Look with me at verses 3 through 6. We'll call this a tempting offer. In verses 3 through 6, we read about uh, the king's command to his servant Ashpenaz uh, to gather the best and the brightest for re-education in the ways of the Chaldeans, in the ways of Babylon. 
These young men are in exile, but they are selected for this privileged position. There's a tension there, right? They're certainly conscripted in the service. They're slaves in the king's court, but they're given this prominence and this training. I don't want to get into necessarily all of the history behind what that involved, but you can imagine as these uh, young uh, men from Judah enter into this re-education program, they're taught many important things. I mean, this is Babylon. They're taught things that the greatest empire in the world has known and discovered. But they're also taught things that run against their faith and that cause a crisis of conscience. It was certainly a test of their faith and their discernment. But there is the free food and the prominent place in the king's palace. We read that everything that comes from the king's table and the king's wine, this is what they were invited to eat. It sounds like a great offer for these young exiles, but it comes with a catch. Uh, We see the catch uh, first in the name change. Uh, They had to change their names. It's not just, you know, you're Mike and now you're Melchizedek. It's bigger than that. Uh, The names uh, really carry this religious significance. You wonder why spend so much time, Daniel, telling us about these new names you were given. I remember a story about a friend uh, who worked in downtown Kansas City, uh, and he was a teacher. And if you were a student and you had a difficult uh, foreign language name, one that was difficult to pronounce in English, uh, you had the option of uh, offering a nickname to be called in class. I know that's something of a cultural sensitivity minefield, but it was practiced and that's what happened. Uh, some of my friends in college, uh, Sung Jong was Adam and Onyu was Joe. And so the teacher asked the children to come forward, record their name. Some of them recorded nicknames. And there was, this, there was this one little boy, I believe he was Chinese. He walks up to the teacher so proud. And the teacher says, what's your name or what's your nickname? He says, I want to be called Jose. <laughs> and it's funny because it's not the name you expect. But think about what that actually tells us. Here's this little boy surrounded by all his Latino friends in downtown Kansas City. And he wants to fit in. He wants to belong. So he wants to be called Jose. So we don't, we don't put a lot of religious stock in these names, but in the story we're reading, these names have a deep religious significance. Daniel and his friends are faced even with this renaming with a tension. Do we just accept these names or do we uh, take a stand and not accept these names? We want to belong, but we want to be faithful. You see from the very beginning, they're facing these crises of conscience. Uh, their Judean names Uh, had something to do with the God of Israel, each and every one of them. You hear it in the ending El and Yah in their names. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. And their new names relate to the gods of Babylon. Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. It doesn't seem like Daniel and his friends make a big deal about the names. Uh, It gives them a radical new identity. In fact, Daniel, as he records the names, he sort of vandalizes them as he goes along. He records them with little tweaks, little differences, kind of subversively changing the name in his own record of the story. So they accept the names, but Daniel was not unaware of what this meant. They are being identified now with a pagan god, and they have to navigate these waters carefully. All of this was a way for Babylon to recruit their loyalty and uh, bring them up from within, and it was common for nations to subdue other nations and to do this. So maybe in a scenario like this, you start to wonder, uh, if you put yourself in their shoes, God seems to be absent. Um, 
Maybe you start to think uh, your sense of God starts to fade a little bit after months and months. This was a three-year program in Babylon, and you think maybe we just go along with this. Maybe it's just easier to swallow it. Maybe we just hang up hope on God and we start blending in with the culture, do our best, assimilate, and abandon the faith. Uh, It's a tempting offer to blend in that they face, and it's a temptation we face today. I came across this quote from the founder of McDonald's, uh, who happened to be an evangelical Christian. And he's reported to have said, I believe in God, my family, and McDonald's. But when I go to the office, I reverse the order. That might help build a burger empire, but it's a terrible way to live out your faith in this world. It's a really bad take on living the Christian life. How easy would it have been, though, for Daniel and his friends to follow that logic and just say, you know what, I believe in God. I'm a member of his family, Judah, but I'm at work. Here, I'm Belteshazzar. Just hand me the quill, hand me the... Babylonian documents. Let me get on with work. Well, this story really comes home for us uh, and where it might convict us of compromise and of conscience is where we consider uh, Jesus's words to us. If you recall, he said we are to be in the world, but what? Not of the world. It's so much easier to be in the world and of the world. But Jesus calls us to be in the world and not of the world. And that's the tempting offer that Nebuchadnezzar, uh, this new king and ruler of Daniel and his friends, is uh, setting before them. And it's a tempting offer uh, that's extended to God's people, to you, every day by the devil. Check your Christian identity at the school door. Hide the name of Christ the next time you punch the clock at work. Just take the path of least resistance. And more than that, enjoy the benefits that accrue to those who don't push back too hard uh, when the world gives you a new name and a new identity. That's the tempting offer that's on the table that we all still face today. What do Daniel and his friends do with it? What do you do with that tempting offer? And this takes us to this second piece of this story, which we'll call taking a stand. Uh, Look with me at verse 8, the last verse we read. And this is really the first key verse. We read, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. The crisis in this chapter, as I kind of mentioned to the kids a minute ago, admittedly, it's a little underwhelming, right? Uh, If you're a kid who grew up in Sunday school, you heard the favorite story they shouted out. Of course, you want to hear Daniel in the lion's den, or maybe the story of the fiery furnace, which we'll see in a couple of weeks. Maybe if you've never seen the flannel graphs, but if you did have a flannel graph, it's much more exciting to see the flames licking the furnace than to see, like, vegetables, right, on the table. But there's a subtle danger in this. There's a subtle danger. Because because it's subtle, it's especially dangerous. Most of the temptations we face every day aren't fiery furnaces and uh, the hungry teeth of lions. It's the subtle things. Just a little irresponsibility. Just a little laziness. Just one juicy little piece of gossip, just a sharp tone with a family member instead of grace, you know, the subtle things, the little things. Some would go so far as to say that this tempting offer faced in Daniel 1 is actually the most dangerous scenario in the book. Herman Veldkamp notes, we should remember that the devil is an even greater danger in the world's dining rooms than in the den of lions. When we hear the sounds of the king's meal being served, When we hear the glasses clink, we should be even more on our guard than when famished lions open their mouths. I think that's really good. That's really good. I think we need to ask three questions 
at this point of the story, uh, to understand the story and also to see how we might learn from Daniel's faith as we look to God in the temptations that we face, the temptation to blend in and pipe down and settle for the identity that the world would have us take. The first question is this, what's the real issue here? We know it's vegetables, right? But in what way would accepting the king's program defile Daniel? Why does he opt for just the salad? Why does he decide not to accept the food from the king's table? There's a lot of debate over why exactly Daniel and his friends won't eat from the king's table. So we should hold our conclusions loosely, but let's think about it for a minute. The word defile is a clue. It certainly has religious overtones to become unclean, to be defiled. A lot of people, I think, naturally assume that Daniel is thinking of the dietary laws. Uh, God's law gave specific prohibitions about certain foods that could be eaten and that couldn't be eaten. So maybe that's what's happening here. Daniel wanted to keep the dietary laws, uh, but the problem is not everything listed in what Daniel refuses was off limits to God's people. Not the wine, for example. Wine was permitted under Jewish law. So is that really what's happening? Another view is that maybe Daniel was avoiding food sacrificed to idols, but elsewhere you see Daniel doesn't seem to be refraining from eating certain things until he fasts and prays. So maybe that's not exactly it. it. What's going on here? Uh, in my own view, and I think uh, we can hold this loosely because it's not spelled out, but if it's true, it's very significant. Uh, I think we see this covenant line of thought happening in Daniel 1. You see this over and over in the Bible. The sharing of a meal signifies a covenant, this accord, this treaty, this relationship. The sharing of a meal is always, always accompanies making a covenant. It's all throughout the Old Testament. And I think as people who celebrate the covenant meal that Christ has made with his people, uh, we celebrate this week after week, and maybe we could understand this. Uh, the word used here to describe the morsels they would have been offered from the king's table, it's unique to this chapter and chapter 11. And if, in, in Daniel chapter 11, it actually is interesting. It follows this logic. It talks about the downfall of a future king. And it says, even those who eat his rich food, that's the same word used in Daniel 1, even those who eat his rich food shall break him. It's unexpected. What's expected is if you eat this rich food, you wouldn't turn against the person you're in covenant with. That's what I think is implied here. It's shocking that someone who shares the king's meal would then turn on the king. Even those who eat his rich food shall break him. So sharing this food signifies, I think, this establishing of a relationship, of a covenant. The only downside to this view, of course, is that they did take the vegetables, and I guess a guy's got to eat, right? I mean, as we said, there's a lot of debate over why Daniel decides they can only eat the vegetables. But I think sharing a covenant meal with the Babylonian king, is what a that's a bridge too far for Daniel. That is a bridge too far. We'll take the names. We'll take the education. We have to eat, but we're not sitting down and establishing a new allegiance to a new king. We already have a king, and we trust that he will take care of us. Of course, this is bad news for his boss, Ashpenaz. It's off with his head if they waste away uh, trying to uphold their conscience in the king's court. But then we see God is behind him. Even though God may have seemed to have vanished, he's right there alongside Daniel. Verse 9, notice every time we hear these words in Daniel 1, verse 9 says, and God gave Daniel favor. So Daniel's request is granted. 
He's allowed to eat just the vegetables, check back in 10 days later, and we'll see what happens. So if that answers the first question, what's really going on here? Uh, what's the real issue at stake here? A second question is, why does that matter to us today? Why should that matter? What can we learn from the conscience and courage that Daniel and his friends show by doing this? Well, they accepted their new names. They accepted the new position in the king's palace, though not exactly willingly. But they drew a line in the sand on this matter of allegiance. On this matter of allegiance, that is where they would not go. We can be in the world in a lot of ways, but we cannot be of the world. We can't switch allegiances. It's changing our covenant allegiance that defiles. Scripture describes this as being like spiritual adultery. The Old Testament prophets are full of passages condemning God's people for going after other gods, for rejecting the covenant and going after other gods. James 4 in the New Testament says that hearts aligned away from our covenant God is tantamount to spiritual adultery and unfaithfulness. James 4.4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So the line in the sand for us is anything that would run out of accord with our covenant relationship and our allegiance to God in the covenant of grace. That's where we draw the line. Christ has made his covenant with us. This is where we must draw the line. If it takes us out of step with that allegiance, we cannot go there. We can abide many things living in a pagan context and environment just like Daniel and his friends. We can be examples to the world just as Daniel and his friends are of being not of this world, though in the world. But we can't go that far. We can't realign our allegiances. You might be saying, okay, great. We've talked about covenants. We've talked about meals. No one has asked me to sit down to a covenant meal with them this week. So what does this actually mean in my life? What does it mean to embrace this allegiance to something other than God? What's the real danger we face? Well, maybe if you're in business or you work in an agency, it's networking with the power brokers in your field. Uh, while you could use some of these connections that you're making for the good, maybe it requires you to work long hours, hours that should have belonged to your family, or spend time in places you shouldn't be, or patting others on the back for things you shouldn't condone, or bend the rules and extend favors and gain influence. Influence that could be used for the good, but at what cost? Young person, maybe it's the grind of accomplishment in a world that never slows down, that never stops and rests and pauses to worship the Creator. Uh, you're afraid that if you follow God's rhythm of work and then worship and rest, you'll fall behind your peers in your studies or your sports or anything else. So the Lord's Day, worship and rest, becomes this movable block that can go before or after other priorities as the needs arise. But at what cost? Maybe it's the educator or the employee or the coach who is required to conform to the spirit of this age as it regards sexual identity and affirming a sad confusion that goes not only against God's created order, but God's will revealed in Scripture. But you could dot a couple of I's and cross a couple of T's and fly under the radar on a touchy subject and live to serve another day. But at what cost? I was listening to a podcast this week with um, PCA member Nancy Guthrie. Uh, she was interviewing David Helm. Uh, he's, he's written a wonderful little commentary on Daniel, but he was just thinking about uh, this very thing. 
And he was convicted listening to a sermon in his own church. And here's what he was convicted by. He said that God didn't save us primarily so that we would serve him, but so that we would love him. Now he qualifies that, of course. Of course we're called to serve God. But our love for God and our obedience to our, his word is our primary act of service. That's his point. Everything flows out of that love for God and that love for his word. So much so that we can't keep quiet or toe the line with the world and live to serve another day and really think we're being faithful to God. So that's the kind of stand that Daniel and his friends take here. They don't cut corners in order to become useful later but to stay in the game so they can make a difference. They say we're going to be faithful to God. They say our faithfulness to God, our service to God is wrapped up in our faithfulness to him and we're going to take this stand because we are going to be faithful to God, the God in whom we have trusted. So that needs to be our line in the sand too. We draw the line at conformity or confidence in this world system. We can't go there. This world systems and values and promises cannot be greater than what we believe in Christ. Instead of loving and serving, obeying, honoring Christ, we decide to give in with the world. We can't do that. That's the bridge too far because we bank on bigger promises. We serve a bigger God with a bigger gospel. So that settles the question about the real issue and what we can learn from it. But another question is, why does Daniel care so much? Why does he care so much? What leads Daniel to hold out hope in God in the midst of exile? That's the big question for Judah. We can't assume that every member of the tribe of Judah really cared about the covenant. They're in exile, after all, after repeatedly disobeying their covenant king. There's a reason they're in this mess. Leviticus 26.33 says, And I will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheathe the sword after you, and your land shall become a desolation, and your cities shall be a waste. That's the ultimate punishment that was promised for breaking God's covenant. That's what the exile shows us. God is true to his word, whether it's a word of life and blessing or a word of judgment. But if that's the case and Judah has been judged, why does Daniel care? Why does he keep serving God? Is there a promise that's deeper than the exile? There is. And that's what Daniel's hope is in. He's trusting that God has promised good things to those who have loved him. There's a promise that came long before the nation's disobedience. We read about it from Paul in Galatians. This is what I mean, says Paul, the law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by a promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So even with this punishment that the people are experiencing in exile, there is a promise to cling to. There is a promise to cling to. His name is Jesus. The promise is Jesus. It's the promise of the gospel. And that's what Daniel is banking on. That's what Daniel is hoping in. His faith was in a God who would be true to his word. He's seen him be true in judgment. And he knows that he will also be true in redemption and mercy and grace. He will fulfill his promise of grace in a final redeemer to bring blessing to all those who run to him. That's who we run to. We run to his sacrifice for sinners. Exiles can return, is sort of Daniel's point throughout the book. Exiles can return because of the deeper and greater promise of Jesus, this promise that we share in. It's amazing that we get to share in this, living here in Warrington, Virginia, so many thousands of years after this promise was given. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that we were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel 
and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But we've been brought near by the blood of Christ. And we share in that promise, this blood that seals our allegiance when the world offers us easier alternatives. Friends, just listen. Just listen to this for a minute. Actually, just look at this table. We're about to celebrate this this morning. We'll receive grace from this sacrament this morning. We don't need another king. We don't need another meal. We don't need another covenant. We have the greatest food and the best drink possible because of our covenant in Jesus. Well, look at Daniel 1, 9 and following. The Lord gives Daniel favor, and this is how he and his friends fare in the test run for this humble request, only eating the vegetables. God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs, And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned you food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test us for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you. And deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them only vegetables. Our king can sustain us as we keep our faith in him. That's what we learn from this scene. One final movement in this story, just by way of conclusion, briefly, we've seen the tempting offer. We've seen Daniel taking a stand. But let's look at this telling ending. This telling ending. God abundantly rewards the faith of those who seek him. Verses 17 and following. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, and when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. This ending is not only just what we expected. uh, It reveals God's final victory. God's hand at work was previewed in verse 2 when God gave the people over to Jehoiakim. God is not absent. He is at work. We're reminded of that in verse 9 when the Lord gave Daniel favor in the face of of his king, of Ashpenaz, his boss. And then we read that the blessings that come to Daniel are from God's hand. And God gave. And God gave. Over and over in this chapter as this encouraging uh, reminder that God has not vanished from the scene. That He is present and active and working in the lives of His people. Look at verse 21. This is really the telling ending. Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. It's kind of how we see Daniel is writing this as an old man maybe in his 80s, looking back over this life in exile. Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. No mention of Nebuchadnezzar. No mention of Nebuchadnezzar. His reign has come and gone. And who is still standing? Daniel is still standing. He will stand through the rise and fall of kings as he keeps his faith in his covenant king. 
The one who lets the exiles return to the land of Judah is Cyrus. Daniel gets to see God working through the shadows and the darkness and the clouds up until the day when even if he did not return, he sees the one who would release his people back to Judah. God would raise up someone from the tribe of Judah as they have returned to the land. He would raise up someone who was promised, the one in whom Daniel trusted by faith, a son of David, a redeemer, and his name is Jesus, the son of Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah, who would give his life to save sinners in need of grace. So Daniel lived to see the wheels of grace in Christ put into motion with this return to Judah. God's purposes were right on track. Alistair Begg, a Scottish pastor in Ohio, he tells this story in his little book on Daniel called Brave by Faith. The story goes that in the 1920s, Lord Reith helped establish the BBC, the British Broadcasting Corporation, and then from 1927 served as its first director general. He was a somewhat severe man from the highlands of Scotland, writes Begg. As the BBC began to be carried along by the tide of secularism that swept through Britain in the 60s, a young producer stood up in a meeting and said to Lord Reith that the world was changing and that the BBC did not need to continue with its religious programming output. People were no longer interested in it. Nobody cares, he says. And the church was becoming increasingly obsolete. Lord Reith, who was six foot six inches tall, stood up, told this young man to take a seat, and said, the church will stand at the grave of the BBC. Or to put it in the words of Jesus, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Babylon was gone. Nebuchadnezzar was gone. But Daniel was standing to see God bring his grace into view. The return of the exiles, through whom the one who would save all of us from our sins would come. You don't just try really, really hard to stand. It's Jesus building his church through you as you take your stand by faith. This life of conscience and courage, powered by faith in gospel promises. So I would just ask you, encourage you, plead with you, don't take the king's food. Don't switch allegiances. Don't try to navigate that line so closely that you're tempted to step over. Be clear about your allegiance to Christ and your refusal to give in to the ways that this world would hold out as better, simpler, easier, uh, not so much problems for you. Stand true to your commitments. Live in the world. Be a light in the world, but don't be of the world. And know that Christ is working through you as you do so to build his church. Let's pray together. Father, we long for this kind of faith, this faith that only you can give. Give us faith in your promises in order to stand with clear resolve in the face of compromise. We know that we are not sufficient for these things, but we also know that you are for us, and that if you are for us, nothing can stand against us as we take a stand and plant our faith firmly in the promise of salvation that only comes through Jesus. We ask these things in his strong and saving name. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.